0: Today's podcast episode was recorded on November 24th of last year. Since that time, 533 more bodies have been discovered at eight more residential schools in Canada, bringing the total number up over 2,000. My guest today told me back in November that having conversations around these discoveries, the ongoing mistreatment of Indigenous people, and the genocide perpetrated by this country is one of the most important steps we can take toward reconciliation. And so, I thought I would bring our conversation to the podcast. My name is Eric Bollman, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. Now, I have to warn you up front here, the audio quality at the beginning of this conversation is not great. Stryker had just had the sudden opportunity to get his daughter her first COVID shot that morning, and he conducted some of the call from the doctor's waiting room. So if you can make it through the first 90 seconds of this podcast, the background noise will go away. Uh, I should also say that since this podcast was recorded, Dr. Danto has published a book. It's called Indigenous Knowledge and Mental Health, A Global Perspective, with his Guelph Humber colleague Dr. Masood Zagane and has taken a new job as the Dean of the Faculty of Health and Community Studies at McEwen University. So, a lot has happened since November, including a career change that has made Dr. Danto's introduction outdated. Now, let's get to that introduction and meet our guests.
1: Striker Calvez, Dishna I'm Michif Nia, Le River Rouge, Uh So, my name is Striker Calvez. I'm a Michif Niti-Ripman from the Red River Territory, uh, currently living in Treaty 6 Territory in Saskatoon. I work at the University of Saskatchewan as the Indigenous education uh, developer for the university, helping to lead everybody towards reconciliation.
2: My name is David Danto. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I'm the head of psychology at the University of Guelph-Humber. I uh, have been involved in a number of efforts toward uh, indigenizing psychology and uh, and decolonizing psychology and institutions and universities through, mostly through the Canadian Psychological Association, but also through the Psychology Foundation of Canada.
0: Terrific. I, and day. my Thank first you. question for you guys is, I see that you're looking to change the name of the okay. section to be more, I guess, inclusive and uh, to embody the notion of working with Indigenous peoples rather than, you know, talking about the psychology of Indigenous peoples, can you tell me a little bit about that proposed name change and what it would mean? Uh,
1: I think I'll take this one, David. Um, so we, uh, as a group, we recognized when we came together as a new executive about a year and a year ago, uh, we recognized that we had a community of people who were. Uh, we assumed were mostly non-Indigenous. We did a survey for the AGM last spring and we actually confirmed that fact. Um, So what we realized is is as a community of people who are interested in supporting Indigenous peoples in Canada, that we, we might have to change how we operate. And in order to do that, we really needed to think about the mechanisms within the section. So originally I believe the section was developed to support the Indigenous psychologists in Canada give them a safe space and a platform to have a voice. And while that is still our mandate, uh, we also wanted to recognize that there was this growing group of people who wanted to be of service and to provide support for Indigenous peoples in Canada. And so in that sense, we really thought the name should reflect a more open and accepting idea for them.
0: I know that a lot of people uh, have been talking about the difference between working with Indigenous people when you go and, uh, you know, spend time in an Indigenous population, bringing your outside uh, knowledge of psychology into that population, uh, which hasn't worked very much in the past. uh, Is is that basically what you're talking about? The sort of collaborative uh, notion rather than the uh, sort of empirical, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word?
1: Yeah, well, essentially there's, There's 1.7 million Indigenous people in Canada and 35 or 38 million Canadians. Um, Reconciliation isn't necessarily all about Indigenous people, although the impact of colonization has been borne mostly by us. There has also been harms done to non-Indigenous people. So if you think about this movement that we have in psychology now, where we're trying to get uh, to a place where we can support the needs of Indigenous communities across Canada There are not enough Indigenous psychologists, not enough people with the the right training to support them. So we really do need to work with allies and accomplices, people who are are willing to invest time getting to know and understand the needs of Indigenous communities to operate in a way that's uh, reflective of their expectations. So in order to do that, we really need to engage with allies as well. So that's where we started realizing that in order to do that as a section, Rather than being a section of Indigenous people, what we needed to do is work with Indigenous people and bring as many people who are willing to do that work together to create a safe environment where they have the night, right, where they have everything they need, where they can have those courageous conversations about what has happened to them and how do you get moved past those places. And So that's where we're we're thinking the name change was supposed to be that reflective element of a community of people who want to work with and for Indigenous people and I, I think we're doing that in a good way we've got lots of allies like david and he can maybe speak to more of the allied perspective
2: thanks striker <clears throat> i guess what what i yeah what i can add to that is um absolutely a few years ago i uh i worked with striker on this um uh response to the truth and reconciliation commission report on behalf of the Canadian Psychological Association and at the time PFC what was clear from the from the attendees and the participants in that process was that psychology and of course indigenous people know this very well the psychology has not been a great friend overall to indigenous people historically And even and even to this day, in many cases, and this is because of exactly the kind of thing that you were mentioning is sort of uh, bringing um, external Western perspectives and approaches to uh, psychopathology, to health, to, you know, concepts of the personality, the family, what have you, to indigenous communities and kind of force fitting if you will, those approaches where they don't belong, and that's harmful. That is a way that psychology has harmed people, and it's happened in the context of education, it's happened in the context of research, and it's happened in the context of uh, applied uh, practice, and so as a person who tries to, um, as, as many do, to apply our ethical principles in a way that is equal to all people in this land, I feel that we have a responsibility to, to change those, uh, those harmful uh, uh, practices and to, uh, and to use approaches that are suitable. And to ask the question, how can psychology really be a good friend? To it, to Indigenous people yeah. uh, in Canada, how can we be supportive? And in many cases, uh, I think the answer to that is that that we can respect and acknowledge that there are already ways of healing. Uh, there's already wisdom and knowledge that is uh, helpful and that promotes resilience and strength and well-being within the communities already. And so, I think as a person who tries to be supportive in that way. I ask myself, what can I do within my profession and to encourage my profession to have a greater respect for and greater uh, humility for Indigenous ways of knowing and, and healing. And so I think that's, you know, sort of decentralized. It's not that psychology can't be involved or shouldn't be involved. I don't think that. I think that we should be involved, but I think we need to decentralize our approaches that have been used. And I think we need to take a a much more collaborative approach and even, in fact, let the local community guide and lead what needs to be done uh, and ask the questions. And we can be supportive in that work.
0: And, you mentioned humility, and I'm thinking that's probably the biggest word that an ally would need to use in order to engage with a community where they are and and actually do something helpful. Would you say that that's an accurate description, that humility is sort of the most important characteristic of an ally? Yeah, and maybe in in, in a couple of different
2: ways. I think humility is um, in our training, everything that we learn, for example, in, in, in psychology is about, you know, uh, ways of thinking. And you mentioned uh, empirical and, you know, empirical really re- has its root in in sort of uh, in the word empiricos, which means sort of known by experience. But so much of the methodology within psychology has evolved in a way to focus on sort of what is objective and what is verifiable quantitatively, which is not necessarily a a bad thing, but when we're talking about human experience, it is an abstraction from experience. And empirical has come to mean quantitative, and it's not the same thing. Empirical really means, you know, with an experience, And when we quantify things, we're sort of taking it a step away from that description of experience. And that's a very Western way of doing things. And we have a respect for certain kinds of research in psychology that may not be a good fit with cultural understandings and experiences of history. And so sometimes those ways of knowing, those Western uh, approaches to knowledge, we get sort of stuck, I think, in a rut that... These are the only ways of knowing that are worthwhile, that are that are testable, that are verifiable, that are conclusive, and that means that we have lost our humility when it comes to other ways of knowing that seem to be less than that, that seem to be uh, a lower standard of proof, a lower standard of knowledge, and I think we that's that that sets us up for wanting to do only certain kinds of research within contexts where that doesn't fit so well. And when we go into communities and we make use of these kinds of methods that don't fit so well and where we sort of lose the connection with the participants for that, for that research and then take our information and make use of it in our esteemed academic way that we use it for. And it never comes back to the community. It's never, it, the community never has a chance to provide feedback for it because it's not in the community's sort of language and it's not participatory. It's not collaborative. It's top down. And it's what you end up with is exactly the situation that we have. You end up with communities who don't want people to, uh, don't trust academics, researchers into their community because they're essentially coming in and taking one more thing from the community. You know, we've taken land, we've taken rights, now we're coming in, we're taking knowledge. And for who? For the sake of the university, for the sake of the researcher, not for the sake of the understanding or growth or well-being of the community. And that's where we sort of lost the priority. So absolutely, it's kind of a long answer, but I think humility is is so is so important to sort of have that approach that it's like, hey, there's lots of ways of knowing the world around us. In some ways might make sense to me because of my background, and some ways may not make sense. But that but I'm going to have humility and respect for those ways and take a back seat where the ways of my training really limit w- the possibilities that can be seen here rather than uh, illuminate the possibilities that can be seen which is what those methods are supposed to be doing so so let's let that guide us rather than a dogmatic adherence to a particular uh, methodology
1: David's very good at explaining these things so I just want to add this thing that you know the other element of this cultural humility is is that a Western education and knowledge it comes from the dominant position right it, it the whole hierarchical structure of Western world is structured in a way that one dominates another based on their education levels, based on their cultural groups, And that is embedded within that sort of paradigm of seeing the world. This cultural humility is a process in which we start to recognize that and to counteract it, right? To recognize that we aren't the the dominant society or community at the top of this long spectrum and so forth. So we need to unpack that as our process of decolonization, cultural humility gives us the tools to do that. But earlier, you said that cultural assets, that was the number one priority or the number one thing that allies needed to do. I would recognize that actually what's more important than cultural humility, but just almost as equal, uh, is commitment. Um, this process towards reconciliation is going to take an enormous amount of effort and it's going to create tensions. And unless you have commitment to see it through, to see the conclusion of what we're trying to do, create a healing that happens for Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, but also bringing healing within to our psychology field um, by healing our ethics that we've uh, we've broken from, we cannot do that unless people are committed to go through those tensions. So I think that's a greater commitment, a greater quality that we need from allies in in psychology.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I, I can see that. Now, I know you guys have done uh, quite a few webinars, teaching sessions, and all the rest of it for people who do want to be allies in this space. Is part of that recruiting more allies, or are you really more interested in making sure that those who want to be allies have the tools and the knowledge and the commitment and the humility to do so?
1: I'm going to suggest that we're more the latter. The important thing about reconciliation is is that people need to find it within themselves, right? I do a lot of help and training with people and the first starting point isn't understanding the issues and to know how to deal with them. The real starting point is knowing yourself, knowing yourself in relationship to Indigenous people and the history that's been here for thousands, and thousands of years. That is, is something that people need to find on their own terms. And so I think it's rather than promotion, it should be about attraction. What we really want to do is show people that what we're doing isn't necessarily an imperative right. It's something that has to happen, although I believe that's true. What we really want to show them is that this is something that's going to benefit everybody, including our profession. And we want to show them that there's a good way to go through this and to do it so that we all learn from it. We all benefit from it. And I think that's done not by telling people you have to do it. I think it's done by showing them this is why you might want to do it. And when people come on board because of their own choices, I think we get people who are much more capable of having the commitment that I spoke to and the willingness to engage in cultural humility.
2: I, I totally agree, Stryker. I, and I'm, I'm of the same mind. I'm not much of a recruiter. And this has come up in different contexts, for example, within the post-secondary context. I think the focus needs to be, and Stryker, I'd like to know your thoughts on this, but similarly, I think the focus needs to be on creating the kind of post-secondary institution that is welcoming and culturally safe and facilitates an appropriate and reflective and critical education for for non-Indigenous and Indigenous students, rather than uh, a focus on Indigenous recruitment. That language has been used. I think I'm seeing it less used today because of those kinds of things. And I think, you know, that is part of a natural process. People have an awareness of of truth and of the act of the real world conditions around them. And if if you create, uh, if you focus on asking the right questions, on being self-critical in terms of, you know, the processes that are in place and creating that culturally welcoming, safe environment. Very, some cases, you know, uh, very practically speaking, uh, safe communities, then, you know, more people will be inclined to participate in in what you're doing. And that will sort of be a natural occurrence. And I feel that's probably true with the section as well. But going out sort of with the intention of of increasing the numbers, I think is sort of a backwards way of doing
0: it. I know that a lot of people want to see more Indigenous people Taking up psychology, becoming psychologist, but what you're saying is that you have to reform the profession first in order to be able to attract people so that they come on their own rather than.
2: I think, and I think it's, I think it would be irresponsible to do it the other way because to just sort of like try to bring people into psychology, people have had really negative, indigenous people have had really negative experiences um, in uh, in class. Uh, in in the context of taking psychology courses, there are myths about uh, you know about genetic predispositions. There are assumptions about everything uh, with Indigenous people. There are prejudices, biases, plain and simple, uh, with regard to Indigenous people because of the long history of colonization. It's hardly avoidable. I always use the expression "the fish is the last to discover water," and I mean like we are so embedded in this context of colonization, whether it's the discipline of psychology or healthcare education whatever it is, in general, it's very difficult for us to see, even with good intentions. So we really need to take a careful examination, those spaces into which we're inviting Indigenous people, because they may not be, they may be places where those people are exposed to certain kinds of traumatic or or re-traumatizing kinds of experiences as they're confronted with incorrect, outdated, uh, unfair, uh, you know, kinds of comment. So so we need to, we, we have a responsibility Ability to be to to be protective of those of those people
1: and i'm going to add that the, the way we we just described it when you when your focus is on just recruiting people in because you want to see more indigenous people in your program that's self-serving that's yeah. not about indigenous people that's not about their needs it's not about what they want um, and if that's your approach to supporting indigenous people then it won't work it will fail at the time so this is what we're talking about, David's talking about, we need to change the environment so that Indigenous people see it as an attractive and desirable place to land, a profession and a career that they want to stay. In. And let's admit, right, Indigenous communities have just as much need for people who are professionals in mental health as the rest of society. So it's not that we couldn't be that place, it's just that we've never thought of making it that way. And so we have to own that by putting the work in now without knowing for certain that we're going to attract those people in, because it's the right thing for us to do as a community and as a, as a profession and and I think we are moving in that direction we've seen a lot of change in the last few years that's going to have to continue to to be amplified and to increase people's interest in this work but once they do I think they're going to realize is that we're not actually harming anything within the profession that already exists if anything we're expanding the possibilities and creating a bigger and more open space for more people to actually find what they're looking for and, The professions and the personal uh, aspirations.
0: As you do that, and as you expand the discipline of psychology and you create these new paths that haven't existed previously, is there sort of a strange disconnect, I guess, uh, in doing so within an institution like a university, which has such a colonial history, which has such a colonial structure to this day, is that sort of an odd place to be in for you?
1: David, I know you've got something to say, so I'm just going to jump in really quickly and say that, no, there are so many examples of interdisciplinary work where people work together across disciplinary lines, and they do so with respect and appreciation and an understanding that this different perspectives actually contributes to a better experience, output product, whatever that might be. We already do it in multiple different ways. We've just never done it across cultures. And that means that we have the tools and the skills to be able to do that work. We just need to expand them as well. And by doing so from a place where we've already got previous experience, just in certain, just make sure certain that we can be successful and that we can do be the psychology field that we all think is true and possible. So I think universities are an excellent place to be doing that work because we already have all this prior experience.
2: Yeah, I really agree. I think you know, if, you, if you can't have these sort of discussions at the university, then where can you have them? Uh, this, this is the place uh, I would expect to have new opinions expressed, new views, and, and a respect for you know, divergent perspectives and an appreciation for different ways of knowing and new potential directions for fields like psychology that even themselves are relatively new. And it's interesting as we talk about sort of like integrating, as we uh, like welcoming psychology being more welcoming to Indigenous people, Indigenous people have been have had their own approaches to healing and wellness for who knows how many years before recorded history and all of that. Psychology is a very young discipline. As a place for disciplines to grow and develop, there's no better place to sort of respect those, uh, you know, ancient traditions and knowledges than, uh, than the university. Yeah, there, there, are, there are challenges. There are challenges that I face and that others face in a very sort of pragmatic way, that have to do with things like bringing in Indigenous scholars, uh, compensating elders, encouraging or advocating for, you know, traditional territorial acknowledgments, openings. There's there's so many things, but that has been the process that others and I have been involved in over the last few years. But what we're seeing is very positive that we're seeing that that those things that we've been advocating for are starting to happen. People don't like, like it's starting to happen and it's a really interesting time, but, you know, there's a lot of things where people have lots of questions. And so we, we, this is why we're, you know, Stryker and I and many, many other people are having sort of like these conversations. Cause the most important thing is to like, let these kinds of conversations happening and the work that you're doing, Eric, I think is so important because it's like, let's, you know, have these conversations. That is really how we sort of begin to to sort of promote these kinds of
1: changes.
0: I'm thinking, I mean, right now, obviously there's these horrific discoveries going on all across Canada. Indigenous people knew this to be the case forever, told everybody that it was the case forever, So it's not coming as as much of a shock to indigenous people, despite that, right, being a gigantic trauma for them. Is that changing anything for you guys? Are you seeing people react in a different way than you would have, say, a a year and a half ago before all of this stuff started dominating the news?
1: it's really important to recognize is that these events when they happen they they're actually re-traumatizing to Indigenous people so we're highly affected right because this is a confirmation of the what we've been advocating against for a long time that Canadian society has not treated us right and has actually gone to the point of harming and killing children to prove it true um, and that is the most horrific experience you can have as a person who comes from these communities to know that you even your children aren't safe right and so um, I've got friends and survivors who, when this happens, it, it just, it sucks the wind out of you and it takes a long time to come back to feeling like you could be okay. That, and that's, that's happened multiple times this last summer alone. So you can imagine how traumatizing it is. I, I very much appreciate that non-Indigenous people are having a sudden reaction to something that they did not know about. And you're right, Indigenous people knew that this was this bad, but we, I don't think we realized the, the, amplitude, the, the magnitude of it all. Um, and so when non-Indigenous people have a reaction, uh, it, it's, I think it's a right thing to do, happen. When they put impose that reaction on Indigenous people to help them cope with it, uh, that is not necessarily the right thing to happen, and this is where we're we're moving as a profession. We should be able to advocate and recognize that you don't go to the people that have been harmed to get support for the for the for your reaction. And and it, it's a it's an emerging process, right? Um, we're new to all of this, and that's what reconciliation is. It's a new idea. It's nothing that we've ever seen before. It's nothing we've ever had before. We're going to have to discover it and build it from our experiences and from our understandings and. I think these experiences that we've had are the way in which you've seen this outrage on both sides of the communities, on both communities, uh, shows us that we are moving in the right direction because now there is an awareness and there's an appropriate response, I think, right? Where people are extremely upset and frustrated with it. And and we're moving in the right direction because we're now trying to support each other in those processes. So I think we're in a a good place and I think this is a, a strong time for us as a community, as a society, um, there are a lot of tensions that we're gonna have to navigate, right? As more revelations come forward, as we experience these more and more, but more importantly, the conversations that we're gonna have around these issues and other issues are gonna get difficult. Um, and we need to be prepared to have those conversations, both as a profession as an as an in individual. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but indigenous people are, are very much affected by these things every single time it happens. And we see these things in the news almost weekly. So this is a process in which we need support and we need other people to be standing up and doing the work as well so that we don't always have to be front and center so that we can actually spend time healing. Right.
2: As a person who tries to be, I'll say that I think that uh, this is my, my personal view that a genocide against Indigenous people has happened in this country. Not a cultural genocide, a genocide. And we are finding bodies uh, at the sites of these residential schools, and there's little doubt that many more remains will be found. And no matter how many bodies are found, there will be more who are not found. And we know this. Right. I think that as a person who isn't Indigenous, recognizing that this occurred, that the killing of Indigenous people in large numbers, because of who they are, occurred in this country. And if we don't want to admit that, I think we need to ask ourselves why we don't want to. If we don't want to call it that, if we don't want to name it, if we don't want to recognize that, I think we need to say why that is because to to me that is it is it, it is clear that that is what has happened and in order to move forward i think that is part of truth i think that is part of recognizing what has happened uh, i think that there's a there's a responsibility when you name something to act and so i think it's important um that we do that
1: and i just want to acknowledge that the, what david just said is why we call him an ally even though he's being humble about the fact yeah.
0: And I guess I kind of I understand the motivation for people using the term cultural genocide because that way it's sort of lessening I don't know I, their own feelings of culpability in it. I, like, you know, why do people use that term when it is very obviously an actual genocide?
2: Well, uh, the the story about the about the residential school system in Canada was always that it was about saving the child while destroying the indigenous aspect of them severing the cultural ties. And while that may have been the objective of the residential school system and of forced adoption initiatives, there was, uh, first of all, that, that, isn't, that, that doesn't preclude genocide if you look at the definition of, of, of genocide, but, but much more than that was done. And many people lost their lives within that system, within those federally government-funded, in many cases, church-run institutions, many children lost their lives. And there's no doubt of who bears responsibility for that. And so calling it merely a cultural genocide is really choosing to define the harm that was done in terms of its intention, uh, rather than its outcome. And we wouldn't do that in a court of law. Right? right? If you're if somebody's intention was merely to harass and not kill, but you ended up killing, you, you don't get the harassment charge. Right? Right. right. So yeah. that's, so yeah, sorry, Striker. I'll turn it over to you.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, but we have to recognize that Canada as a society is just coming to terms with what it's done. And as a stepping stone, cultural genocide was the thing that they did, right? They were still in this belief that residential schools could have possibly been a benefit to Indigenous children, right? And I think that now that we're seeing that that was quite not true, people are going to come to terms with this idea that it was more than just a cultural genocide. It was just a purely genocidal. But I don't want to dismiss the the the... the the malevolence of cultural genocide, right? Because I am who I am because of my ancestry, because of my beliefs, because of my identity, because everything that I have ever been is a tie to the land. So to take away all my worldviews, beliefs and everything like that, you'd leave me with nothing. So it is just as horrific as genocide, although I physically might be there, I would be a stranger in my own body. So uh, the, it was still a huge, significant step forward to extate cultural genocide. Um, that's not to dismiss it, um, but we've now become more articulate. We've understood the truths that surround it and we can call it what it really was, is a genocide.
0: You know, Stryker, you were saying that we have made progress, right? There is progress being made but when I turn on the news I see militarized RCMP breaking up blockades and arresting people at demonstrations. Can you give me maybe a concrete example of some progress that has been made by an actual step in the right direction over these last two, three, five years?
1: Okay, I'm going to land it right inside psychology. so we started off by, well, David and a huge group of people who are recognizing what was happening, came up with that response to the TRC, that report. That is, it. That is an, uh, an accomplishment. Since then, it hasn't collected dust. It hasn't sat on a shelf and said, you know what, we did that thing, so we're done. We're good, right? We could live off that for five or ten years. What has happened, though, is we've seen this invigorating conversation starting to merge in different spots of the in the field of psychology. And now you're seeing a change to the st- ethics standards, right? So the standards are gonna change, we're increasing it, we're adding to a value as well as some practice that will support indigenization of psychology and support for reconciliation. We're also seeing ACPRO uh, step up and change the regu- the way in which they want regulatory boards to start addressing these issues. So, even within our profession, we are now starting to see an enormous amount of change. It's starting now it's not it hasn't even begun, but the ripples are still being felt, and that we felt across the profession. So those are just two elements and that's just like, people think we came out with that report in 2018, we're now in 2021, and we're already starting to see these dramatic changes. These are changes at the core parts of the profession, and they will continue to grow and build. And I think this is where we can see that we've had a very successful impact.
0: Progress is being made, but there is still a long way to go. As Stryker and David have told us, it will require commitment and humility, not just from allies in the profession of psychology, but from all of us as Canadians, recognizing the harms that were done by our governments, schools, churches, and other institutions against Indigenous people in every part of the country, understanding how those historic harms and the institutions that caused them continue to contribute to the marginalization of those people today and understanding when to take the lead so as not to put the onus on traumatized people, and when to take a back seat so as to center those people in your efforts. I must confess, like that's the part I have the trouble with most. I want to feature black people on this podcast to talk about black issues, indigenous people to speak to indigenous issues, trans and non-binary people to speak to the issues that affect them. I'm always nervous though when I ask for those interviews because it means those people will be doing the bulk of the heavy lifting during that episode. I may never feel fully comfortable doing this, but as both David and Stryker said today, the whole process must necessarily uh, really be uncomfortable if we want to move from truth to reconciliation. So I want to thank both Stryker Calvez and David Danto for being my guests on Mindful today. Mindful is written, produced, edited, and published by me, Eric Bowman, And our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. We'll see you next week for another uncomfortable conversation.